Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, we are welcoming Kelly Daw to the podcast. Kelly has worked with Killer Whales at SeaWorld San Antonio, as well as a multitude of other marine animals. And I am just dying to share all of her wisdom and experience with all of you. So welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Hi, Hazel. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat to you again. We met, oh, how many years ago is it now? Four years? Oh my gosh, it was back in when I visited France in 2018. My mom and I stopped by. <laughs> yeah. There. Yeah, it was so nice. It's something I love about, you know, our field. It can be so open. You know, we're we are really like one big family. If some one of us visits somewhere, you're like, yeah, come and meet our animals, come and see them. Uh it was so lovely uh for you and obviously your mom as well. She was there, but you were doing like a little Europe trip. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So my mom and I try to go on a, um, like a trip, just the two of us every year. So France was kind of our first one. We went for my 30th birthday. So, um, I had actually just gotten moved over to killer whale. We left like two weeks after I had started, got transferred from sea lion over to killer whale at SeaWorld. And, um, yeah, we packed up and took off to 10 days to France. We went to, uh, Paris, Bordeaux and Nice. So on our way into town for Nice, I had contacted you, obviously, yeah. and seen if we could drop by and kind of see what's going on in a different killer whale facility. Since I'm very familiar with the SeaWorld, having worked at San Diego and San Antonio, um, but there's not very many killer whale facilities in the world. So it's always fun to stop by and see how things um, are different and the same all over the place. Yeah, and it's actually quite surprising how many you know differences there are. I mean, just myself having worked at Laura Park in Tenerife and Marineland, you know, there are quite a few stark differences and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll touch on that, you know, later on, but, um, you mentioned there that you worked, you know, at SeaWorld San Diego, SeaWorld San Antonio. Did you always grow up knowing that that was a goal that you wanted to be a marine mammal trainer or? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I was the little girl that grew up with Free Willy and saw that movie and was like, yep, I'm going to do that. And growing up in Portland, Oregon, Keiko actually lived at the Oregon Coast Aquarium for some time. So I got to go and see him in real life a couple of wow. times. And so it was really, really special uh, for me to be able to, you know, see Free Willy and like kind of see that experience and then go and meet him in real life. And then my family vacationed, um, you know, down in San Diego and, and had gone to SeaWorld San Diego and Orlando multiple times when I was really, when I was younger. So it was just always the plan. And everybody was like, yeah, sure. Okay. Whatever you say. <laughs> and then eventually it's like, oh dang, she's actually going to do it. And I was like, yep, sorry, mom and dad, you're uh, stuck with it now. <laughs> well, it's their fault for exposing you to it so much. I mean, when you think exactly. about it. Exactly. I was already a weird animal girl and a horse girl. And, you know, I'm like, how dare you not expect me to go play with more animals? Yeah. Like it's just a natural progression at that point. It really so is. What was the first SeaWorld that you started working at? Um, I did a couple internships prior to working at SeaWorld. So I have my degree in animal behavior from Oregon State University, um, which was nice that I got to go to a land grant college that had an agricultural school and uh, school of animal sciences. So I got to be a lot more um, kind of applied animal behavior versus, you know, psychology and being a little bit more abstract on the human side. And then I did a internship in Hawaii at Dolphin Quest and then went to the Shedd Aquarium and did an internship there. Um, spent a couple months as an educator at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park um, when I got my first seasonal position at SeaWorld San Diego. So I spent a summer there with the killer whales there. As a seasonal? As a seasonal, yeah, as an associate. First, so, is, was that your first position as a trainer? Yep. Mm -hmm. Straight away with killer whale. Yeah. So um, how it worked back then, this was back in, you know, 2013, um, is they hired, oh, about five associates per area every summer. Um, so they're usually about 150 to 200 applicants and swim testers, and they get it down to about 25 or 30 positions. Um, so we had five of us, six of us at 
killer whale in San Diego, and then same thing at all the other areas, you know, Dolphin Show, Dolphin Point, uh, Sea Lion. And so being, I was, you know, brand spanking new into the field, killer whale is where they kind of start their first year seasonals. And then a lot of times when people come back for their second year seasonals, they go to the more hands-on areas. So with the um, SeaWorld rules and associate, you have to be a trainer level or above to uh, have contact with a killer whale. Yeah, but what was it like? You know, you've obviously done your internships, you've studied, you've volunteered. So, you know, you do have an, a good grasp of like what the job is and you're definitely ready to step into a paid trainer position at that point. But what was it like going into killer whale and being like, oh my God, like first trainer position. Had killer whales, I mean, you spoke about loving Keiko, so I imagine killer whales was always the goal. It but- was, yeah, it was always the goal. And um, so it was very cool to get to go there. It was a little bit of a mixed bag because I knew I was the situation, kind of what your job was at killer whale versus what your job was at the more, at the hands-on areas. So, um, you know, it was like slightly disappointing to not stop in an area or start in an area that you had a lot of you know, animal interaction and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But also I kind of viewed it as an opportunity to learn from the best because the San Diego killer rail trainers, you know, at the time had been there for, you know, years and years and years and were just absolutely amazing. They had 10 killer whales. They had the largest pod in the SeaWorld family and they had a brand new baby. Makani was only, I think, three months old when I got there. So I got to watch him grow up for a couple of months. Oh my goodness. And watch the social dynamics between all of that, which was amazing. So I really took it as an opportunity as a real growth and a foundational aspect. Um, they were really wonderful about lecture series and um, teaching you that kind of aspect of things of the really foundational training. And I think that really set me up well for my action, my, my next position, which was a, you know, hands-on yeah. water work type dolphin training position at the Georgia Aquarium. So it I was think a that's, really amazing experience. Yeah, I think for sure, you know, that's, that's also a really great way for you to look at it, you know, because going through internships and stuff, it can be very competitive and you do compare yourself to, you know, what everyone else is doing. So, you know, instead of being focused on, oh, well, this person got hired at the same time as me and Dolphin and they're running program with the Dolphin and I'm still up here, you know, in the fish kitchen and just cleaning buckets. But can you explain a little bit why with Killer Whale at the very beginning, you don't move that quickly? I mean, it's just the, you know, the level of the animals, you know, um, that's another thing that I realized later on when I got back to Killer Whale or back into the SeaWorld system is they're very intentional about who they place at killer whale, the, you know, the, the personality of the trainer, their, their individual skill set, what they can bring to the team and then how much they can teach, you know, up and coming trainers, since there is kind of a different, a bigger level disparity with that type of animal. I mean, in essence, they're very dangerous. You know, you can get into a lot of trouble if you, you know, make a certain kind of mistake. And luckily all of the animals I ever worked with were I mean, very forgiving and very sweet oh, creatures. Absolutely. But, I mean, they're wonderful, but you always have to have that in the back of your head mm-hmm. that something can always happen. And, you know, that's the same with dolphins and sea lions and walruses and giraffes and, you know, all these other huge yeah. animals that's always in the back of your head. Um, so I think it's, it's always been right that they approach it from that type of mentality, but we were given a lot of opportunity to grow our foundational skills in that set as well. You know, we were, um, we participated in training sessions, working target poles and, um, you know, throwing prompts. We were in the shows doing uh, the public speaking or the, you know, on microphone portions. So it was building a lot of foundational skills that they did give us a lot of opportunity outside of, you know, direct in their face animal training. We're still helping with the training plans, what comes next, we're involved in all the conversation. So they actually put us on um, a certain animals training team so that every time they had a training session, we were pulled from whatever other thing that we were doing um, to come observe or help or assist in some way. Yeah, I think that's really great that, you know, even though you were right at the beginning and just starting, you were still a, a valued member of that team. You know, you still had your own role to play within it. Um, you spoke a little bit about the fact that you know, you do need to be aware that these are very large animals. You do need to be aware about keeping yourself safe. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about um, passing swim tests, you know, to get into it. Um, What was that like? Because I know a lot of my listeners uh, are aspiring trainers themselves. 
and you know will be itching to kind of know the secrets like know the tips and tricks and you know hear stories of people who have done it previously Uh, and one thing I always say to them is a swim test is not designed to catch you out it's literally just designed to let everyone know that you're capable of doing the job and keeping yourself safe so what was your experiences of swim tests like I think the culture around everything has changed from when I first started. Um, you know, Definitely. I started at SeaWorld San Diego in uh, the summer that Blackfish came out. So I started in a very different industry than where I ended. Oh my God. Okay. We're going to, we're going to circle back to that one. Yeah, we, I, it was wild, but um, when I, so when I started, it was before like our swim tests for the summer seasonal positions took place in, I think it was in March. And then March or April, and then we started in May. So, and there were, you know, 150 people that swam for those 25 positions. So you showed up at 7 a.m. in the morning with, I mean, I think each day there was 40 to 50 people and it lasted, you know, three to four days, depending. Um, I think there were over 30 people in my my day of swim. So you start- yeah, you start at the Dolphin uh, Stadium, and I mean, I remember this process so vividly because I've never been so nervous in my life. <laughs> and I am not a swimmer. I am not, you know, I'm an athletic person, but I've never been an athlete. I showed horses competitively my entire youth, um, so I was never, you know, I grew up on a boat and doing water sports recreationally, but I was never a swimmer. So during my um, my Shed Aquarium internship, I actually took some swim lessons to perfect my form and just get better and more comfortable in, cause I knew the speed I was going to have to, to go, to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a little bit more confidence in that way and I practiced, but there's nothing that really prepares you for 30 people standing around you, just firing in the pool one after the other, and you go with another person. So you're like swimming against somebody almost for the first portion for the freestyle. And, uh, yeah, I was very, very, very nervous. It's March in San Diego. The water's 55 degrees. Um, you know, it's absolutely frigid. So that part, I think the best thing that I did was take those formal swim lessons because they identified really quickly that I had this weird hitch in one of my shoulders that was slowing me down a lot. So even though I kind of knew that fundamentals, um, taking those formal swim lessons really, really helped. As far as the underwater goes, um, that is pure mentality. You got to get in there with the thought in your brain that I am not coming up. So I always go straight to the bottom and I swim along the bottom because if I'm all the way 30 feet down, the chances of me accidentally coming up or panicking are very low. And then I panic forward. (laughs) Yes. Instead of up. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Um, I always tell my mentees either have a song in your head that you can sing to yourself. Oh yeah. Um, or the mantra I teach them, which is probably pretty harsh. Um, I just tell them to say to themselves over and over and over again, do it or drown. Yep. Do it or much. drown. Do it or drown. Do it or drown. Because it's not because I want them to drown. And, and they wouldn't anyway. And there's safety divers and everything. You know, you are safe doing it. Yeah. Um, it's just you cannot let that tiny little seed of doubt creep into your mind because the second that that doubt is there, you're up. Like before, before you've even like had a second thought, your body's already shooting up to the surface. I mean, I remember one of the trainers on the team at Marineland with me and you know, like when you're a killer whale trainer, this swim test is a recurring nightmare. You do not, you do not get to get away from it. Um, And I always did the V swim test. So I did the underwater breath hold and the surface dive in one. So I would swim down to the bottom in the middle and then up. To the other end of the pool rather than going straight down and then straight across I just thought it was mm-hmm. easier and one of my fellow trainers who's one of my good friends was like I've never done it before I want to try it let me go behind you and I remember swimming down 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 like diagonally got to the grate in the middle I turned I held onto the grate and I turned around to see where she was and I watched her touch her hand on the bottom and immediately shoot up to the surface <laughs> And I was like, where are you going? Like, I'm just chilling at the bottom here. I'm like, where are you off to? And I I came back up and I asked her, I was like, what happened? And she was like, I don't know. It was just like second nature. Like, I just always do that. That's what she'd always done. Every time she touched the bottom, she would just come up. So, you know, sometimes you're not even conscious of the fact that you've thought that. 
So yeah, yeah having a mantra in the swim test is, you know, you've. Oh, you've I cannot one. do the ones where you have to go down and turn around in your underwater. Mm. First, if I see the wall, I'm done. So any pool that you're in, you know, sometimes you have to do those swim tests in the smaller pools. If I have to turn around underwater, I'm toast. I got to do it in one straight shot. There's no way I'm turning around. Everyone's like, no, but then you get a push off. I'm like, I don't know. My brain just says wall done. Go up. It's <laughs> yes. not happening. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely so psychological. But, you know, the good news is you obviously passed. You got your seasonal position. You learned so much there about the foundations of training. And then you moved on. So your seasonal ended. You moved away from Killer Rails for a little bit and started working where? Yeah, so I had a weird little journey at the end of that. Um, they ended up not hiring anybody from the Killer Rail team, the six of us that year. Um, so a lot of my colleagues that I, or my coworkers that I was associates with went back the next year and got full-time spots. So I had very much the dilemma of, do I, do I stay and like, you know, get another job in San Diego and stick it out? Um, or do I move on? And so I initially got a, um, a job at the Joel Slavin show, the pets rule show that's at SeaWorld. And I did that for a couple of months and that was just not for me. Um, so my, one of my best friends from one of my internships, she actually had just gotten a seasonal position at the Georgia Aquarium and they were expanding the team. And so there was a few other seasonal positions available. And so I applied for that, got that one. And um, because of how their team was set up, it was, I had a lot, I thought I had a much better chance of getting that permanent position in Georgia than I did in necessarily in San Diego. Um, I was pretty confident I could secure one the following summer, but you know, it was like, a 75% or wait six months. And then it's like, you never know what the situation is going to be. So I went to, um, I moved out to Atlanta and was a seasonal for, I think only three months before they pulled me on full-time. So I spent the next, uh, about three years there at the Georgia Aquarium with their their bottomless dolphin show. Wow. And then when did you circle back to killer whale? Killer Whale took me a while. So I spent, like I said, about three years in Georgia with bottlenose dolphins. And then um, I was just ready to move on. And so I was either going to go back as a seasonal in San Diego and take the big risk of leaving my full timer to, you know, go back to kind of get on track for the next species. Um, And right as I was about to swim test there, a a couple full-time spots came available in San Antonio. So I went swim tested, um, got that, and actually got sent to the Sea Lion and Otter Stadium which I had never worked with pinnipeds or anything before. I was like cetaceans only. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got sent to sea lion and otter and I spent about two and a half years there before they moved me over to killer whale. Nice. You know, I really do love um, hearing everyone's stories and everyone's journeys, you know, about how they, how they made it happen. You know, I feel like mine was always very linear. I went like sea lion, dolphin, killer whale. <laughs> so it's always really nice to hear everyone else's stories about how they made it happen because there's definitely no set way of of getting there you know the amount of people who have gone around the back through the middle up the like it's it's crazy but you eventually did end up back with killer rails and when Mm -hmm. you when you did did you feel like oh my god I've I've done it I'm here finally it was a it was kind of a you know bittersweet type of thing you know at SeaWorld um you're a member of the animal training team and they can move you to whatever stadium at any time. Um, So I had started at sea lion and otter thinking like, wow, this is a bizarre place to send me. You know, I have, I have show water work experience. You know, I have worked at killer rails is just kind of a weird thing. I did come in at a higher level um, than a lot of the other people that got hired at the same time as me. So they got sent to killer whales, the associate trainers Mm -hmm. and myself and another colleague got sent to uh, sea lion as a higher level. So we could actually do, you know, everything they needed to do right away. We had no restrictions on us. So I think that was why I ended up there, but it was such a blessing in disguise. I was disappointed at first and it ended up being like my absolute favorite place Aww. that I worked. I, I loved the animals more than anything. I loved doing the show with the goofy characters and the, you know, just the silliness of it all. I loved my team that I worked there. Everything was, I came from a very structured, strict environment and everything at Sea Lion was just like kind of a fly by the seat of your pants, um, 
go for and hope for the best kind of a world uh, yeah. with an animal that's so hormonally dependent and, you know, goes through such extreme seasonal changes. Yeah. Usually, and always right in the middle of the busy season. Oh like, yeah. Always in summer, always in summer. And our entire show team was males going through a rut and they were like, yeah, I don't want to do anything in you, 104 degree heat. They're like, nope. Oh my God. Not even having like one female that you can rely on all uh, males. Oh my goodness. Yep. So they were, uh, they, yeah, we had a couple that were castrated, which helped a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but really most of them in that type of heat and everything, they were just like, absolutely not. So your, uh, your living skills and your performance skills really went up a notch. Yeah. Uh, But I had so much fun with them. They were amazing. So I was, I, the the goal was still killer whales. Like I was never going to leave the industry until I got to killer whale. I just Mm -hmm. wasn't ready yet. Um, I was a senior trainer and I was, I felt like, especially performance wise, I was a very strong performer having grown up doing acting classes and commercials and things. And, um, I felt like I had a lot more to give that area and I wasn't ready to go yet. If they would have given me another year, year and a half, I think I would have volunteered. Um, so it was a very frustrating experience to be taken away from something that like you're, you're on a roll, you're getting really good. And then you're, you know, pulled out to be put into, you know, an area that, you basically get put at a standstill for yeah. a while. What, what, so is, what is the reason? Hmm? Yeah, obviously a lot of us that are in the industry know about SeaWorld moving people around like that. What's the, I don't know the answer. Like what, what is the reason for that? Why? Um, it's a lot of career development. So it's, it's wanting to have the higher level trainers be able to slot in anywhere. So when you're, um, when you're younger and you're, you know, still learning a lot, getting a lot of exposure to different species is, they want to encourage that so that when you are, you know, higher levels and you're very experienced, you can be plugged in anywhere at any time. Um, so it's really more creating a m- more rounded department versus areas. So, and then obviously with the turnover that we all experience in this field, your dynamics on your experience level and your dynamics on your team are constantly changing. So as a, a senior, you know, with sea lion experience, killer whale experience, um, you know, I would have been somebody that can be transferred between the areas as experiences needed, not necessarily mm. like on the normal schedule, which happened a lot. If we lost, you know, a really senior trainer, then, you know, somebody else had to kind of fill in that role, whether they came from another area or, you know, somebody else had to just step into it. So it's really um, more about that departmental goal of a very well-rounded experienced staff um, and starting them at that kind of base level, you know, get a year here, get a year there, find where you're really good. That doesn't necessarily mean you'll stay there because you're really good to everybody's dismay. Um, But I think it is a general feeling that everybody wishes they had a lot more say in that matter because it's yeah I mean I discouraging like I understand the reasoning behind it but yeah I, I someone had tried to move me from killer as I would be pissed <laughs> I was very unhappy about it yeah, yeah. I, again if they would have just given me more time and I tried to tell them that I'm like just give me another year and I will volunteer like I'm in support of what like my personal goals is I want to work with yeah as many animals mm-hmm. as I can Um, And I think it contributed to me leaving the industry sooner than I thought I would. That's such a shame because yeah, I understand the positives behind it, but you know, there's also a lot of negatives. If you move people before they're ready or to somewhere where they don't feel, you know, in their best self, or they don't feel like it's the right move for them, that will breed a lot of resentment and negativity as well. So it's a bit of a risky strategy. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And I think it does contribute a lot to people leaving, um, SeaWorld in those times. And, you know, the, the thing that was most frustrating to me at the time was nobody explained to me why until I left mm. and oh I had my God. Like, the interview and I was like, I never understood. Nobody ever told me anything. It was like, well, you're a good behaviorist. And we think you as a person will do good with killer whales. Cause you know, not everybody is, has the yeah, disposition no. to work with yes. killer whales. I love that. Um, So many people don't um, understand that. And I think for me, it was like a big fear when I got in, finally became a paid trainer. And it's that realization of, oh crap, what if I'm not good at it? You know, you don't really think about being good at it. You just think about getting yourself there. And then once you're there, you're kind of like, oh. And I remember, um, I don't know if I've talked about this on previous episodes, but my um, former supervisor, when I was working with dolphins, when I told him I was going to go work with killer rails, he turned around and said, you'll be back to dolphins within a year. 
obviously I wasn't Thanks. <laughs> obviously I wasn't but I was like why do you say that and he was like because so many dolphin trainers go to killer rail and hate it and then go back and I was like well I'm not going to be one of them <laughs> and I wasn't but I do understand what he meant you know after seeing other trainers come in it definitely takes a certain type of person to be able to stand in front of a killer rail and say all right we're going to have a partnership we're going to do this let's go together Um, Yeah, there's a level of confidence and like instinct that you have to have that not everybody has. mm -hmm. And somebody might be really great with sea lions or dolphins. And then, you know, those killer whales, they'll, they'll, for lack of a better word, eat you alive. You know, that is a pure choice of words. (laughs) (laughs) They'll take one look at you and be like, oh man, I got this girl. It's awesome. And And that doesn't even mean, that's not even just at the beginning. That continues. That's every day. (laughs) All the time. Like literally constantly. Our young females were like, "Mm, you look a little distracted today. I am going to try some things. (laughs) Yes. Like I am going to push boundaries. Like I can tell you are hungover. I can tell you've just come back from vacation. I am going to push those boundaries. Exactly. Yeah. They will, they will put you through the ringer. So it is a a unique personality. And I, so I understood Mm -hmm. that, but they did not tell me that at the time. Yeah. like sat me down and been like, Hey, we're moving you. This is why this is what we need at killer whale. And this is what you are going to bring to killer whale. Like, I don't know, stroke my ego a little bit, you know, I don't want to (laughs) go. So yeah, at least give me a silver lining for sure. Yeah. Give me something of like, no, we, we specifically picked you and it came down and you know, they didn't give me any reasoning until I left. And then I was like, that would have been nice to know at the time. That's so sad, but you did go to Killer Rail and you obviously did, you know, become successful at it. So when you were working at Killer Rail, what whale did you start with? I started with 2R, who is our subdominant male, um, who, I mean, is probably my second favorite animal of all time. He is just a wonderful, sweet soul that just is, he just tries so hard all the time. He's always giving you hundred um, percent. And when he's not giving you hundred percent, it's because somebody's telling him he's not allowed to give you hundred percent. Yes. So yes. Dealing with the social dynamics and that is very, very important. And having the subdominant male, you really have to be very, very attuned to everything that's going on in the pool because every little flinch and look affects him. Absolutely. You know, I genuinely think they're the hardest animals to work with. Um, so I'm surprised that that was your first, <laughs> I'm surprised he that was, that was he's your very first forgiving, one. especially, um, you know, individually, it was mostly, you know, we could mix all five. We have three females and two males. Um, but for the most part, we have them, you know, in male, female pods, um, you know, and we would vary that up all the time, but for consistency, we would have the two males together and the three females together. Um, and so in the two, just the two male dynamic, because they were both adults, they were, it was a very clear dominant subdominant. Um, it was a very easy dynamic to work in most of the yeah. time. So he is a really good learner animal. Um, the male, I mean, I don't know, to be honest, I don't even know why I said that because Inuk is the like subdominant male at Marineland, And most people start on Inuk because he's literally a teddy bear. Um, they are, I mean, yeah. that's why they're the subdominant is yeah. they're, they're, <laughs> they really just want to yeah. be cuddled. Yeah. It only gets really, really difficult when you have like the whole pod in a pool with the matriarch and the matriarch's yes. daughters. And then you're like, ha this is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. Once the girls are there, two are sitting there, like his eyes go underwater and he's like, hold on, I got to make sure I'm okay. Uh, yeah. And Kai, you know, Kai, you get every now and then would, you know, give him, give him that evil, evil eye or for whatever reason. And so, yeah, I mean, not everybody starts on 2R. It really depends on the team makeup at the time. Um, I very quickly got added to Sakari's team, who is our um, adolescent female. So our our three females are the matriarchal line as well. We have Takara, yeah. matriarch, Sakari's, um, you know, the adolescent young adult female. And then we had Kamea, who was the baby. So she was about four. Kamea was four. Sakari was nine um, when I was there. So I very quickly started with 2R for like maybe a month or two and then got added on to Sakari really quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you were already at a higher level going in. So, yeah. you know, it does make sense that they would move you a little bit faster. You know, brand new killer rail trainer, you can expect to be on the same whale for about two, three years. Yes. Um, but yeah, coming in at a different level, similar to Meet Marineland, you know, I started immediately on Wiki and KO together. Uh, first day it was like these are your whales and I was like okay I'm gonna do my best to learn them <laughs> but you know something I find incredibly fascinating about working with killer whales is the social dynamic and are there individual personalities because for me it's just 
over and above every other species. I don't know if you have the same experience, but when we say killer whales are on another level, how, how do you explain it? I think personality wise, they are because they have so much more opportunity, I think, to express their personalities than other animals. Generally, the, the pods are smaller. So mm-hmm. first of all, you, you know, you have a team of 22 people working five animals. So you're spending a lot more time with individuals versus over at sea lion. We had a team of 15 that was responsible for hundred animals, including our feeder pool. Oh you know, God. we had eight show males. We have two males in training. We had eight otters, you know, we have two walruses and then our entire feeder pool. So, you know, we were working with, and then even when I worked at dolphin in Georgia, we had 15, 13 dolphins. So you're working with a lot more animals. So you don't really have the same amount of attention to fine tuned little bits of their personality versus when your focus is five animals with 22 people, you know, the ins and outs of everything to do with their, their social dynamics, what's going on that day, that night, that hour, because you're constantly watching them. And an important part of working with killer whales is that constant awareness of what's going on in the pool, because that's going to affect your next session, your next show. It's going to determine if the next session is going to be safe to interact with them. It's going to, you know, determine the timing of when you interact with them, whether you need to get a set, move some gates. Um, So you're hyper aware of them at all times versus a group of eight sea lions in a pool. They, they deck, you open the gate, they deck, you call them out, they're ready to roll. Um, They're pretty much the same with the exception of Rhett, uh, the same (laughs) animal, you know, time in and time out. But with the whales, you know, you might get a different animal in every session that day, a different aspect of their personality on the same animal. Yeah. I mean, I always liken them almost kind of to teenagers, uh, like human Mm -hmm. teenagers, like you never quite know which one you're going to get when they turn up, you know, depending on what another whale has said to them, or, you know, maybe they just, their breakfast isn't sitting right in their stomach or like, you know, they're just a little bit hormonal, uh, especially with the young males. Um, But you did mention a little bit safety there and obviously safety is very very big priority um, around a killer whale pool or with any large animal you know rhinos um, lions elephants you know any of those kind of animals you always take a little bit of extra care Um, for me what I always find very interesting is the extent of the safety protocols at each facility so you know I worked at Laurel Park who took all of their safety protocols and modeled them off of SeaWorld Um, So, you know, we had the very strict rules of don't put two knees on the ground, you know, no face tactile, you know, it was definitely, I would say a lot more kind of sterile and clear cut, very black and white, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. Marineland, we also had a lot of strict safety protocols, but we also were allowed to use our best judgment of know when you can do things and know when it's appropriate to do face tactile in which pool and with what trainers spotting you. For me, having worked at both, and I'm I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. <laughs> For me, watching the interactions between trainers in both pods, to what extent do you feel like the very strict safety protocols potentially are detrimental to relationship or to the way the whales interact with the trainers? Obviously, I don't know what it was like at SeaWorld. I'm just going with what you know, I experienced at Laurel Park and the kind of mentality and relationship that you would see or the extent of relationship, because there were still great relationships at Laurel Park between trainers and whales, but not to the extent that I saw and even myself experienced at Marineland. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a very, I mean, it was a very frustrating situation to be in because I mean, this is, uh, this is all my personal opinion, obviously I'm not associated with the company anymore, but, <laughs> yes. um, having worked at multiple facilities, having worked with multiple species, like that was one deterrent to killer whales. Nobody wanted to go there and deal with all of the rules and having, you really have someone breathing down your neck at all times. You know, there, you can't approach the, uh, the number of animals in the pool. You can't have a session with three animals in the pool versus two animals in the pool because of how many people are outside and who's in the area and what levels. And you can't be within this distance. Um, you know, it was almost like if the sun's in the Eastern quadrant on this date with the stars aligned in this way, then you can approach the whale. And it was like, Jesus, you know, it's It's very mathematical. It was was, very mathematical. We had to read this massive book every year and, you know, 
act like we committed it to memory and reality. Like it's, you know, it's four inches thick. Like nobody's going to commit that to memory. And it was excessive to the point that it was, it impeded our ability to do our job a lot of the time. And most of us considered half of those roles unnecessary because I agree. No, I, I completely silly. agree. They were designed, they were built. I don't know who thought them up, but it wasn't a killer rail trainer. It was, you know, legal and attorneys and random people and nobody to my knowledge that actually had ever worked in a pool with a killer rail. They didn't ask the killer rail trainers, Hey, what would make you feel safer? Like in order to do face tactile, we have to be behind a barrier. So we put in these steel rods, these like steel bars that I'm like, this is a 12,000 pound killer whale. And this is a six pound steel bar. It's going to do nothing. If that animal wants to come for me, that's not going to do anything. This is just stupid. And honestly, you know, I've always thought it would probably make it worse because what if you got your leg caught? What if you hit your head on it? You know, like for me, that over it really easily or somebody, you know, we've had people trip over each other's, you know, you have one that you're doing your thing with your whale. If you have your whales split and start chasing each other around, Mm. you got to get that thing out of there. You know, you're stumbling over each other. It was a, I mean, it was a nuisance. Mm -hmm. So again, I mean, I wasn't privy to the conversations of how those came about or, but we were always asking for amendments to it. Always trying to change. And we're like, this is stupid. And it just makes my life so much more difficult. I think there's also, you have to give trainers, especially experienced trainers, a level, and I'm not even counting myself in that. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, managers, superiors who have 20 plus years experience working with killer rails in the water with killer rails. They should have been given more of a voice, I believe, in saying, you know, what we're capable of doing in a safe way in a managed environment versus making things almost impossible. And I remember when those bars that you were talking about came in, um, a lot of the public were like talking about, oh, it's creating a physical barrier between trainer and whale. It's going to be a detriment to relationship. But I don't, I don't believe that. I believe they're very annoying, but detrimental to relationship. Absolutely not. But for me, um, experiencing at Laurel Park, it was the numbers thing that was detrimental to relationship because that determined what we could do in session. So like you could have wanted, there could have been three senior trainers and we could have been like, you know what, let's go, let's do a massive relate session. We're going to get jello. We're going to get toys. We're going to get everything. We're going to go over the wall and we're going to do rub downs. If you don't have an individual spotter of a certain level, you can't do that session. Yeah. I mean, we ended up having to change plan. I mean, throughout the day, because the supervisors get really busy, get called off you know, have to go do something else. And then your whole day is shot. You know, somebody ends up in a meeting for four hours and you're doing your entire day from behind the wall. Mm -hmm. And so you're not touching your whale. You're not playing with your whale. You're not, you know, running around with them. I mean, you can do those things, but you can't touch them. You're behind the, you're behind the wall the whole day. And it's, I mean, that can't be that fun for the whale where they're like, Hey, I'm used to getting like scratch. They're so tactile. They're like, I'm used to getting scratches and, you know, pats and tail bumps and high fives. And now you're just like staring at me from five feet away from me, throwing fish at me. Yeah. And I remember, and I still think about it now, you know, the way the whales interacted with us at Laura Park compared to the way the whales interacted with us at Marineland, you know, Marineland, as long as there were two of you and you could see each other, you would call to each other and be like, hey, I'm going to, you know, as long as there were five of you in the area, five was like our safety number because we had four animals and then it was one trainer extra. If there were five of you within an animal area and two of you close to each other that you could see each other, you could touch an animal. And, you know, we would just constantly like if we were just cleaning buckets or going to tidy stuff up or going to get toys we would just like pat a peck fin here, do a little rub down here, like get a hose out in the middle and do a little hose play session. And I think about all of those times at Laurel Park where like we were just walking around poolside and the animals just didn't come over because by that point they'd learned like there's no point. Like I'm not going to come over to the trainer because I'm not going to get any attention. So now that I think I've seen both environments you know, and I've also seen, you know, from social media and videos and stuff, you know, I think they have relaxed the rules slightly at Laura Park. So I think that hopefully that aspect of things has improved. Um, but I think we don't take into consideration the psychology of it on the animals when we're implementing all these safety things. Yeah. I mean, they didn't take into consideration that when they pulled swimming either. So yeah, 
I know. You know that was the whale's favorite thing in the world. That was the mm-hmm. most reinforcing thing to them. Granted, it did pose the highest risk to the trainers, um, but I think every trainer in the industry. Um, oh, there's your phone. There it is. So Kelly is very kindly doing this podcast interview from her work because our time difference is insane. Um, but yeah, we were talking a little bit about water work. Uh, I want to expand on that actually because I think it's genuinely a little bit fascinating to think about how it could have been done better so we all know that there was just a blanket ban it was just you know one day there was water work and one day there was no more water work for any animal how do you think it could have been approached differently I mean oh my goodness Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think it was, I don't think that ever should be banned, should have been banned in the first place. I mean, um, you know, what happened? <laughs> All right. Okay. Sorry about that. I'm very busy over here now. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah. So, I mean, in my mind that happened back in what, 2010, I remember it very vividly. I was studying abroad in Australia at the time. Um, and it was one of those things that I think that's pretty universal across at, as far as how trainers feel is, you know, it should have been maybe a couple of weeks out while they figured out kind of what happened. Um, and then right back in, because the animal that, that the incident did happen with, wasn't even a waterwork animal. It wasn't yeah. in a waterwork session. It wasn't an animal that was approved for, for waterwork. Um, so it really punished all of the animals that were approved for that. Um, and you know, one day everybody's just gone, you know, you have to imagine yeah. what that was like for the whales is, you know, one day they're having fun doing the thing they've done their, you know, entire lives. And then the next day, everyone's just gone. It's and negative. Reinfo- it's negative punishment. Absolutely. It's a massive, massive negative punishment. And for you guys that don't know what that means, negative punishment isn't the same group as food deprivation, uh, which we don't use. You know, negative punishment is basically just taking something away from your animal that is detrimental to them. So you're going to take away all of this trainer attention that they know and love. Um, I talk through some of this stuff with my mentees, just because I think it's it's good food for thought about, you know, what could have been done differently? You know, how can we really act and react as trainers with our animals' best interests in mind? And I always thought, you know, why could it not have been relaxed slightly? Because, you know, SeaWorld, it was very much, you know, show must go on mentality. You know, it didn't really matter what was going on socially, or I think there were some exceptions. Um, you know, water work was expected in every single show, you know, could they have just scaled it back slightly to, okay, we get to decide, you know, even right in the middle of a show, even right in the middle of a segment, if we suddenly decide, no, we're not going to do water work right now, it's not safe. They had the power to do that. You know, did they only do what, could they only do water work with animals that, you know, were super reliable, really seemed to enjoy it versus animals who would do it, but weren't really that fussed. Do you think that that could have been better? You know, like a gradiented kind of like. Yeah, I think there could have been a lot of approaches. Again, if the trainers were consulted in any of this, I think they would have had a lot of ideas. Oh, we never are adapted. <laughs> no, never. You know, the the um, Robin Sheets and you know PDs of the world that have been doing that for you know 20, 30 years. You know, they're the guys that you they should have called and been like, hey, what do we do? You know, what's going to make this? We have to do something. Something has to change. There has to be you know some sort of improvement after this horrible accident right um and so you know those are the people that should have been consulted about what is going to set up what's going to make the trainers the safest first and foremost and then what is also going to provide the animals with the most enriching opportunities and you know and then provide a good product at the end of the day um but you know you prioritize in that way um that's how it was with dolphin water work i mean if i look down at my dolphin and you know she she's you know all tight and not wanting you know clearly showing me signs that something's going on I'm not getting in that water absolutely That's a recipe for you know some ankle chewing like, yeah of course you know, the bottle nose it's not the end of the world but you know you need to be able to read those signs mm-hmm. and have the ability to you know call it off right then and there and you know send something different and you know what's really interesting as well is it, it it is the trainers that were in the water for years and even trainers who have had minor accidents with animals who were the loudest and being like no like we want water work back like it's 
it's so good for the animals and you do definitely see a change in the body language of animals when they realize the trainer is getting in the water um you know obviously at all facilities right now kind of across the board we do water desensitization so it's like safety training you know trainers get to get in the water kind of in the med pool etc um did you see any of that when you were at san antonio yeah i got to participate in a couple of those sessions um with 2R and with Sakari. And, um, you know, we would bring a lot of times in those decents, you know, there would be the main trainer. And then especially with, uh, with the bigger boys that with the adults, um, you know, they would, we'd bring bigger, uh, multiple trainers into the water, you know, they'd be lifted off to whatever standards it was. I can't remember at this point. Yeah. Cause it's always um, done. You know, it's always done in the pool with the rising floor, you know, safety yes. is always, you know, the biggest priority in these types mm-hmm. of sessions for sure. Yeah, with locked gates and, um, you know, there's a lot of very strict restrictions. Um, Your curator has to be in the area. There, you know, all seven trainers have to be around the pool. You know, there's all these other things that go along with it. But every time we did that with, I mean, the attitude change with the animals, once they see them, so everybody gathered around that med pool and they know the exact setup of how it happens. It, I mean, their eyes brighten, they are like jazzed about it. And, you know, they, they participate at such a high level in those. I mean, like sharp, exactly what you ask when you ask it, you know, anything Eager. you want, they're absolutely into it and keyed in the whole time. And you can tell they're just loving every second of it. And then with the little girls, um, I think, you know, ultimately what pulling us out of the water did was make it a lot more dangerous for us because these younger animals like Sakari, who, you know, was a baby when that happened. And so she never had people in the water and those babies, it used to be that they would learn, they would see people in the water with their mom and learn a lot of that interaction through, you know, just learn manners. Learn manners, you know, how do I, what it looks like, how to interact, you know, they would learn a lot of that with mom and Sakari never saw that. And so Kamea, when she came along, the water descents program was up and running. So she was actually further along in her training than Sakari was because she had been seeing that forever. Sakari Mm -hmm. went through a number of years with nothing. She'd never seen somebody in the water. So she was by far our most dangerous animal. Like if you were going to fall, trip and fall into the pool, that's the last one you want to accidentally fall into yeah. because it would be, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. And killer whales are very possessive of new things. Mm-hmm. They're very, um, yeah, and possessive is the best word for it because it's oh, absolutely thing. It's not that she would, you know, be out there in an aggressive way to try to hurt somebody. It's oh this my is gosh, mine. I've never seen this before. This is amazing. So I'm gonna keep it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I you're staying I was, when I was a seasonal, I watched Kalia get a new toy in San Diego and she didn't give, give it back to us for two days. Oh, and two days, two days. She would not give oh that back. God. To us. And so, you know, the trainers at the time reminded me, they're like that right there is what you want to avoid and why not being in the water is dangerous because she's never seen that before. And now she's decided it's hers and she's not going to give it back. So yeah, there's like, there's the Yeah, there's a couple of points I want to make because a lot of people don't understand how strict water work was with regards to, you know, your your body as a human and a body of a killer being together in the water and how well educated the adults are about being around a human. Like if they accidentally touch you with a peck or with their tail or with any body part, if you're pointing them to a different trainer, they're incorrect. It doesn't matter if they do the behavior correctly. It doesn't matter if they get to the B point. If they touched you and all you did was point them, they're incorrect. Mm -hmm. So the whales are so strictly educated at that point to, I know that this human being is fragile. (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to interact with this human being the same way I would interact with, you know, another member of my pod. So just like you said, you know, that's what makes it dangerous not going in with animals that don't have that same understanding of, I can't treat this human as you know, the way I would treat my sister or my brother or my mom, because, you know, that's all I know. So mm-hmm. yeah, even you're if a so- little glass, a little glass piece in their world, yeah. and it's their world. And oh, you yeah. know, it's the same rules with, you know, dolphins and sea lions and everything, you know, etiquette is the first thing. And the most important thing is you have your spacing, you have your distance, you have your response and your recalls. And mm-hmm. that's 
drilled in from day one is recall, yeah. recall, 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 mm-hmm. and then etiquette. So spacing, how they touch you, um, you know, when they're coming, when you're receiving them and they're, you know, they're coming in hot towards you when they put on the brakes and when yeah. you know, they touch, how they touch your, your hand target and how they line up for you and the way that they we had, move around you. We had a finger. I don't know if you guys have the pointed finger um, at SeaWorld, but at Marineland, if a whale was coming back, like coming in hot, like, you know, sometimes they're super motivated for session and like, they will come right up at you. If you put your index finger down in the water, doesn't matter if they are coming at you at 30 miles an hour, you know, the fastest they can swim, they will stop and break. Like they will pump the brakes and you'll have a tidal wave of water coming to you, but they will touch your index finger with like a feather light touch. I mean, we couldn't touch the water unless we had a barrier. So we oh yeah. <laughs> But I mean, it's the same thing that when they would come in hot, there was a certain level of how far they would, you know, if you're standing on your platform, how far they would come up out of the water when they sit up in front of you. Yeah. And there was a, there was a standard that was like, nope, that's, there's a level at the excitement that they come up. And mm. if they're, you know, their head and their pecs come too far out of the water, that's now incorrect. Cause that was too high. That was unacceptable yeah. amount of energy. Mm-hmm. You need to chill out before you get to me. And usually that's like barely their eye patches coming out of the water. So if they're really, really jazzed up and they're coming out pecs out, that's yeah. an LRS because that's not something that you want to encourage unless you're, you know, throwing out a hand target or a pole or something to be like, yeah, yeah come on up here, you know? Yeah, exactly. What was, uh, what was your favorite memory with the whales? Do you have oh any gosh. one singular memory that like jumps out to you? Um, I mean, the water descents, like on my last week, I got to, um, do a surface ride with 2R, which was just amazing. Aww. And, you know, be in the, in the water with him, even though it's still like basically like standing water, you know? Um, but that was really amazing. He's just like the cuddliest, sweetest soul. And so I just spent a lot of time in my final days, just like sitting with him, you know, with my barrier in up close to him and just like looking in his eyes and touching his, his face and like having that little moment with him. Yeah. Um, and then there was some really, you know, my last show is very emotional. Mm-hmm. And then um, I remember I was training a very difficult concept behavior that we were calling it ping pong, where you would ask them to do a certain uh, behavior, but then it would go in the initial position and then directly across the pool 180 in the second position. Oh yeah. And Tour is, bless his heart, he tries so hard, but he <laughs> is not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, so the concept behaviors are really, really challenging for him. And the day that he got the discrimination between the alien and the bows at the ping pong, mm-hmm. I like, I was like, he's the smartest whale in the world. And everybody was like, okay, not really. He forgot <laughs> it, but he got it one day. <laughs> he forgot it immediately. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's such a... It's such a, you know, high as a trainer, like when finally your animal, that light bulb moment, you're like, oh my God, it's clicked. They've got it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's def- a day towards, I, I don't, it was probably my last couple of months. I think it was before I had put in my notice, but we didn't do a lot of unstructured, um, like interactions. They were pretty rare because of all the requirements that we needed, yeah. but we were having a talk after a show one day. I think we did like a, a tour after, after the show. So we were all down by the glass and the boys were in the show pool. And they were just sitting there like at the class, like staring at us. And so we had everybody. So two were like kind of popped his head up and I reached up and, you know, kind of started like patting his head and stuff. And then he just rolls to the side and, and then Kai comes over and he's getting his little, his like peck patted, but then he goes up to the, um, the slide out area and rolls over and just lays next to the slide. Oh. And so like four people went up with him and like started scratching his belly. And then two R does the same thing at the glass. So we were all just, I mean, completely spontaneously, they just literally came up to us and were like, here's my belly, scratch me. Um, you know, I completely love that. On and that one was really, really special. I too. love those moments. I remember just the rolling over and showing of the belly moment. Um, I remember standing on stage and one of the other trainers at Marineland, Miriam, who wasn't on Wiki's team, she'd been working Wiki because she was senior uh, for that almost that whole week because we were short staffed. And uh, my supervisor was standing beside me and we'd sent um, Wiki during a session to the glass. And Wiki did that. She like turned over onto her belly and was just like floating there. And Miriam was kind of standing there like, what is this? Like, what do I do? 
And I didn't even know. I was like, she's not supposed to do that. And I turned to Duncan and he was laughing and he just went, she's asking Miriam to swim with her. That, apparent, that apparently that's what Wiki used to do whenever she wanted a trainer to go into the water, that she would just go there and roll over and just be like, come on, come with me. And it's just, it's just the absolute sweetest thing. But you mentioned there, you know, your last show handing in your notice. So you are no longer killer whale trainer. You're just former killer whale trainer. Yes. Um, former. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's an incredibly dis- difficult decision to make to leave the field. How did you deal with it? Um, mine had a lot of, you know, underlying factors um, that went to it that didn't really have a lot to do with the job. Uh, I was l- living in Texas. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. So that is a very difficult place for a Pacific Northwest girl to live just, you know, in, in many reasons, but mainly the weather, you know, I'm not built for 105 and 90 degree humidity in a black <laughs> all yes. day. That is not what my body is made for. So, um, you know, I got to the point that I was just like, I can't, I can't live like this. I can't stand this heat outside all day, every day. It was just the most draining thing ever. Mm. Um, and I kind of had the mentality that I wish I could pick up my entire life and just move it. Oh, I hear that. Northwest. I wanted I my job, that. my friends, my house, you know, I wanted it all to just whoop and just plop it right back down in, you know, Portland or Seattle. But fortunately that's not how life works. No, and life is way more complicated than that. Yeah. So, and all my friends and everything, you know, I really did love like the, the aspects of my life there. I just was really unhappy living in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, a, a factor of it was I, you know, I was loving working with the killer whales, but the rules and everything was very exhausting and frustrating. And I knew I wanted to go back to sea lion. And they basically told me that I was not going to do that for probably three to five years. Okay. And I was like, I don't want to even like, I don't even like living here. And you're telling me I'm not going to get to go back to where I know I want to be for three to five years. That really doesn't sit well with yeah. me. So even though like I was having an amazing time with the whales and I loved that and I loved, I would not trade my experience there for anything. It's kind of, like I said earlier, I just wasn't ready to be there yet. And you know, you know where that comes from? The fact that you even found it necessary to clarify that is the amount of judgment that goes around in this field. And that was going to be my next point. Like, did you feel judged in leaving in choosing to leave? Yeah. I mean, you know, my reasons for leaving were varied. It wasn't all because they, it wasn't like I'm pro I'm leaving because you moved me like that mm. wasn't, I was there for a year, you know, it was not, yeah, it was just a contribute. It was a contributing fact. Yeah. And I had already been considering it before that just simply because of, like I said, just living there. It wasn't something that I, I was not where I was going to be, you know, it wasn't mm. my final place. I knew I wanted to get back to my family. Um, and that just was going to be, it just played a quicker factor. And I had one of yeah. the, one of the girls ask me, before, you know, after I've turned in my notice, she was like, if you were still at sea lion, would you be quitting? And I was like, I think it was coming either way, but it wouldn't be happening now because I yeah. just wasn't ready. I hear that. I totally hear that. You know, even my own situation, I left because I wanted my life with my fiance, but people asked me as well, like, oh, if you weren't with your fiance, you would just be with killer whales forever. Right. And I was like, well, actually no, because, you know, I didn't have my family there. I didn't have the quality of life that I wanted. So yeah, I might've stayed for another two, three years, but eventually I, you know, would have gone back to Scotland or gone, gone somewhere else. So yeah, there's so many different factors, but I think it's so important to have these conversations out in the open about trainers and the reasons for why they might want to leave because, you know, it takes so much to even just get into the field. And for a lot of aspiring trainers or new trainers, they find it very difficult to understand that mentality. You know, they're, they're almost resentful of you for giving it up. (laughs) Like, it's a very weird dynamic. That That was me, you know, coming into the field. I was like, no, this is my lifelong dream. Like I was a lifer. There was, I wasn't going anywhere. You know, that was how I felt for the good portion of my career. But, you know, as you get older, your priorities change. Absolutely. Your body hurts. First of all, Mm -hmm. everything hurts and you're dying all the time. So, you know, you're on your feet 10, 12 hours a day. Your shifts are long. You're working weekends and holidays. Um, You know, your vacations are few and far between. It's a compassion fatigue is a very real thing. Like you watch enough animals, which is just, you know, the what goes into animal care in any capacity is you watch animals get sick and die and get old and die. And 
you know, the way that you feel about your pets, you know, when they pass away, that's how we feel regularly. Yes. So, you know, there's, there's a, a body, a physical fatigue, there's, you know, an emotional fatigue and, you know, there's a desire to have some sort of life because your life revolves yeah. around that job. You know, your friends are your, your coworkers. Are and it's not healthy. Friends. It's not healthy. It's not good boundaries. That's why there's always so much drama everywhere. It's because we're oh, yeah. on top of each other at all times. Mm-hmm. Nobody's from there. So nobody has any friends outside of your C-roll friends yep. or your coworkers. So your coworkers are your friends, your family, your enemies, like they're yeah. everything wrapped into one and your mental health is, you know, in the gutter, especially, <laughs> especially with killer whales, you know, you're under the microscope at all times. You feel like you can't even sneeze without permission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just exhausting and mm-hmm. in every way, mentally, physically, emotionally. And you get to a point, especially I, I think people get to their thirties and they're like, I, something's got to give I yeah. gotta do something different because you're just tired. You're tired. Yeah. You're but poor. here. You're poor. You're very poor. You're very yes. poor. I got real sick of being poor. Yes, absolutely. But I just want um, to let anyone listening know who who maybe doesn't understand why anyone would leave, or maybe someone's afraid to admit, you know, like, oh, maybe this is something I see for myself in the next five years. You know, it is definitely possible to have those moments in your dream job and be grateful for the fact that you had them and no one can take those memories away and then move forward into something new and realize that, you know, you can still have a very happy and fulfilling life, even without them being in it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I looked at it as I was trading my professional life for my personal life. Oh, me too. And when you're young and you're ambitious and you're just dead set on a dream and there's nothing that's going to get, you know, I sacrificed romantic relationships for that, that I was like, get out of my way. This is where you know it. You're either in or you're out. Um, and which is not a way to approach a relationship in any capacity. Um, but you know, I, there came a point that I had sacrificed my personal life for my professional life for so long, for 10 years, Yeah. you know, even longer than that, before that college Mm -hmm. and everything, I always knew I wasn't going to be staying in Oregon. So I didn't develop, you know, a lot of relationships relationships that would have last, could have lasted, Mm -hmm. but you give up so much and, you know, you trade your personal life or your professional life that you get to a point where you're like, okay, well now my ovaries are getting a little old and I'm drying up a little bit. You know, you start to think about where you see your life going and if it yeah. all fits together anymore. And, you know, that's what ultimately happened is I traded my professional life for my personal life and it fits yeah. much better. Now my life yes. is all around my job. My job is just a part of my life, yes. my entire life. Mm-hmm. And but that's how it should be. It's really, yeah, that's normal. It's very normal. Even if you love your job, even normal. if you're passionate, even if, even if you adore every single second you are at work, it is still work. You're still allowed to want vacation time. You're still allowed to use your sick days. You're still allowed to look forward to a weekend. You should not be judged for that. <laughs> I think that's one of the most annoying things that ever was said to me. They're like, how can you, I mean, you play with animals all day. You have the dream job. Like how, why would, why would you ever want to leave? Or what do you mean? You know, you're, you're unhappy or you're, you know, you're excited for vacation. Your whole life is a vacation. It's like, no, it is work. And playing with animals is about 20% of it. The rest of it is some of it's a lot of BS and some of it's, you know, it's very physically challenging. There's a lot of, you know, politicky type stuff that goes along with it you're navigating a lot of personalities all up in your face at all times absolutely you know it's ultimately it's work even if it's yeah even if it's the most fun thing in the world you know it's still work so kelly what advice um would you give to an aspiring trainer who wants to be in the field of marine mammals now that you've gone through the whole thing and left Yeah, I think, you know, my best advice is to, I mean, definitely give it your all. Like it's something that's going to take everything from you, um, but it's going to give you a lot. You know, I have out of this, this 10 years that I spent in the animal care field, I have probably the best friends I could have possibly imagined. And they're all over the country. Um, You know, they're, they're everywhere. And so I can pretty much go anywhere and find somebody that I know somewhere as, you know, me and Hazel showed when I was visiting France. 
I think that's such great advice, Kelly, honestly. And thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me, even though you're incredibly busy and you're at work and your phone has been ringing. <laughs> but um, I know the phone popping in and out. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I think the key thing to take away is give it your all, um, you know, especially when you're young and you have everything to give. But, you know, as you move into it and you get more comfortable, really fine tune your boundaries of where you know, you can, if you want to go the distance and you want to stay in the field, you know, make that your whole career, which that's okay. If that changes as you get older and priorities change, you know, that's, that's okay. So be accepting of those things as they come, but also if you want to make it and that to be your entire career for your whole working life, um, as you get older, allow your priorities to change and your, um, commitments to adapt with, you know, your needs at the time and, you know, respect yourself in a way that, you know, you can address the compassion fatigue and the emotional aspects of the job in a healthy way. Don't just try to bury that all down because it's going to, it's going to pile up and it, it, it's very difficult. So be cognizant of, you know, the ways that the career affects, you not only physically, but in your mental and emotional space as well, because it does, it does take a lot from you. Um, but you're going to get a lot out of it and try to remember every minute because it's, it's weird how fast it goes by. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love all of that. Thank you so, so much, Kelly, for being a guest. It was so wonderful to talk to you again. Yeah. It was lovely to, you know, virtually see you again after a couple of years and, um, you know, kind of give my take on things that, you know, take it for what it's worth as a former killer oil trainer that now sits at a desk all day. So <laughs> and answers the phone here and there. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed it, then please do not forget to like rate and subscribe, and I will catch you guys next week.